okay. to discuss any of those things. Okay, great. All right, we're going to go live. All right. In theory, live. I always say in theory. I, I can't I can't think of a time that it hasn't worked. I guess, I'm just like, I'm just so skeptical of technology in general. I just don't trust it <laughs> at all, ever. So that's that's a completely reasonable reaction. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I always sort of use this analogy. Like, imagine you're a, a carpenter, and your hammer randomly just stops hammering. You know, <laughs> like it would just be so unsettling. And, and yet, as you know, as we work with computers, that is just our lives every day. All right, we're definitely live. Someone just confirmed okay. our existence. So, so the Excellent. question I always ask people, who are you? What do you do? Uh, so my name is Dr. Shinoa Tremblay, and I am a, a radio astronomer, a researcher with the SETI Institute currently. Fantastic. And it's funny, we were just we were just talking about this before you started and you until just a couple of weeks ago were in Australia. That's correct. Um, I just recently, a couple, about three, four weeks ago, moved from Western Australia to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And yeah, it's been quite an adventure at this time of, of existence, of trying yeah. to travel all the way to the other side of the world, uh, be able to adapt to almost a full day difference in time zones and start a new position. So it's been kind of an exciting whirlwind of, of yeah. Of bits of stuff. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Um, you. Now you came across my radar because you were part of a team that uh, used the Murchison Widefield Array in Australia to scan the center of the Milky Way for any kind of intelligence signal. Uh, so, did you find aliens? No, we didn't okay. find any aliens, unfortunately. All right. Um, but one of the, you know, what we were trying to do is. So the Murchison Wide Field Array is in Western Australia, and it's supposed—it's a precursor to an instrument called the Square Kilometer Array, or the SKA, which is a future telescope that's being built at the moment. And a lot of the work that I have been doing over the last few years has been learning how we could process data on large scales that in, a pro in such a way that we could scale up for something as large as the SKA. And uh, it came across that we could use this to do multiple different science cases, and we have done so. And SETI was one of those things, the search for the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. And the type of searches that we're doing here is to stare at a patch of sky for a longer period of time. So in this survey, it was seven hours to see if we could find uh, very weak kind of leakages radio signals that might be coming off from a planet from their everyday lives, just like we might try to go and look for if we were outside of our own planet, you know, our daily communications through cell phones or military right. satellites or GPS or, or those types of things. So that's the type of stuff we were looking for. And, and I guess like that leaked emission that is coming from our air traffic control system, as you said, our broadcasting networks and all of that is moving in this sphere away from the earth at one light year per light year per year. And that's very different from a concentrated signal that's being directed at us from some extraterrestrial civilization that's going, okay, hey, earth, we have a message for you. 
how much more difficult is it to detect a, I guess, a leaked signal versus one that's being directed at us? I mean, both is quite a challenge. I think the, the biggest challenge that we have is that we only have a sample size of one Earth to base our understanding of how a technology may communicate and how they might actually try to send out a signal. So we want to look at a purposeful signal. Yes, it's probably going to be a lot brighter and you have a potential for encoding a lot of detail and information. Uh, maybe there's actually a sentence involved, but whether we could in uh, decode that or not is, is one challenge, but also just are we pointing exactly in the right space to be able to detect that? So we would just be as random as anybody else to send out a, a signal in any particular direction because we don't know where another civilization may exist that could receive that type of signal. And so the, I guess the idea of some of these searches is to go back periodically over time because perhaps it wasn't that the signal didn't exist. It's just we didn't look at the right place at the right time at the right frequency. And our telescopes will have limitations as to how much data we can collect at any time. And then our supercomputing systems have limitations of how much data we can actually process for everything that the telescope can actually take um, as data. So even for the Murchison Wide Field Array at the moment, you know, the telescope can gather tremendous more information than we can actually process on hmm. the supercomputers at the moment. So we have all of these trade-offs and challenges that we face um, from our own technology, let alone the possibility of detecting somebody else's technology. So let's talk about the, the Murchison Widefield Array, because I think, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the upcoming Square Kilometer Array, and, and I guess sort of half of the Square Kilometer Array is based on the Murchison Widefield Array. So, so how does it work? So the Murchison Wide Field Array is a set of what's called dipole antennas. And these are antennas that look like little metal spiders out in the desert, and they just sit on the ground. So they don't look particularly exciting. They don't have any moving parts. They're not big, huge dishes. Um, they're just these X's sitting on there. So people call them the robotic spiders in the field. And we have these tiles and the tiles are a grid of four by four, uh, yeah, four by four of these um, tiles. And then we have 256 of these tiles uh, sitting out across the desert, spread over six kilometers. And we take data with these, which is mostly just staring up at the sky. And then we wait for objects to kind of pass overhead a bit. Um, we have some degree of steering through a mechanical sense, where you can expect that if signals are coming from a specific direction, that they're going to hit parts of the array before they'll hit other parts of the array. Oh, so because we know the speed of light, we know exactly how much time should be between those two signals. So you can electronically steer the dishes to point to various parts. Um, and then we correct the rest of it within software. Uh, so it's, it's a technological challenge more than an engineering challenge from a physical um, antenna standpoint. Plus also um, the wide field array views the sky at low radio frequencies. So this is 70 to uh, 300 megahertz roughly. And with that, that means the sky is much hotter or much brighter 
than anything on the earth. So now we no longer have to like cool the antennas like you would for something like the very large array or a number of these standard dish style antennas. And so there's a, there are some differences and some challenges that we face with the Merson wide field array and the future low frequency square kilometer array, which actually is gonna operate at a slightly broader bandwidth hmm. is the idea, is to go up a little higher in frequency and down a little lower in frequency. And so with a ground-based telescope, we do have limits as to how low in frequency we can go, uh, but we still have a pretty broad range in radio astronomy to be able to search the sky. And the benefits of doing techno signature or, or searches for extraterrestrial intelligence at these lower frequencies is that that's where we're predominantly communicating. So we're predominantly have chosen that that's going to be the best way because the radio waves can traverse uh, larger distances. The technology is relatively cheap and easy to build. The reason why we've been using radio since the 19, early 1900s is because it hasn't been overly complicated. So if you've got a civilization at least as technologically advanced as the Earth, or at least over the last hundred years, that means that you've got a significant number of planets that you could search for a potential for that level of technology. Now, you mentioned that you're generating almost too much data <clears throat> to be able to even process. Can you give us a sense of, of like how much data and sort of why is so much data being generated by this telescope? So the Merchison Wide Field Array, as its name suggests, is, is viewing a very wide field of the sky. So roughly 900 square degrees, which is several thousand sizes of the moon, fits into one view. Um, and our supercomputing technology, not only are we doing that, but we also do this at a particular resolution. So our ability to um, resolve the objects on the sky itself, but also a frequency resolution. So this is our ability to differentiate signals across various different frequency wavelengths and wavelengths. Um, so when you put all of that information together, you're talking about terabytes per second of data collection. Right. And then, you know, we have an archive that is petabytes in size. So these are very large numbers. Uh, when we look at our raw data from the sky, each of the files can be hundreds of gigabytes in size, and that's for five minutes of data. So if you multiply that for seven hours, you can see that, that this, quite, this gets quite big really fast. Right, yeah. And, and, and I guess the, the challenge being to actually process through it to find what you're looking for takes a pretty beefy machine as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I, for this work, I used uh, supercomputers at the Posse Supercomputing Center, which is in Western Australia. And uh, on the supercomputers there, I, it usually takes me between 300 and 500,000 CPU hours to process one set of data for wow. a survey this size. So this is not a particularly simple uh, task. Uh, in that one facility, I actually spanned three supercomputers um, to process this data uh, for different tasks uh, in order to handle the different file sizes at different stages of the processing. That's amazing. Um, and it roughly takes three to six weeks 
to process the data depending on how vigilant I am and restarting the next jobs or or checking the data and things like that. Well, it's funny, like, like, I remember, like, with SETI at home, it was the same problem that they were just generating so much data that they needed people's help to comb through the, the data to search for any kind of signal. And so they would they had this, I think it was like a, a giant supercomputer with all of these people donating processor time to help kind of go through it. So the enthusiasm is definitely there for the public. Hopefully you can take advantage of, of that network. Um, so let's talk about the search that you did. So I guess which part of the sky, which region of the sky were you zeroing in on? So we focused on the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And there's a couple different reasons for that. One is that it's where the highest density of stars are known to exist. So that has, I guess, two benefits, uh, but also some cons. So the cons are, is we already know that it's a very powerful environment. We know that there are supernova explosions where stars are exploding. There are uh, signs of other cosmological catastrophes that are, are happening on a regular basis. So that doesn't sound like it bodes so well for the potential for another existence of life. Right. But also do this higher density of stars if we go with this prospect of even 10% of every star um, having a plan at least one planet around it. Then you have these potential for closely packed civilizations that may have been able to eat more easily detect each other and therefore more easily have an interest in going and finding each other, mm -hmm. therefore generating more signals at a higher power than what we may be doing or something similar on the long lines of, you know, us going and putting a rover on Mars and wanting to communicate with that rover. But on a much larger time scale, if we were going to go to our next closest solar system, you know, that's 14 light years or so away. Right. So we would need a lot more powerful transmitters to constantly communicate between that. Right. Those systems. Um, and so so scanned the center of the Milky Way. And, and I guess, what kinds of signals were you hoping to see? What would it, you know, I mean, I guess you could say the wavelength, but that would be meaningless. So what, what kinds of, of, of radio transmissions were you hoping to capture? So we're hoping to capture these types of leakages from standard everyday communication. And, and how we would pick that up would be for narrow frequency channels. So if we think of a car radio and you tune your car radio to 98.3 and then 98.4, that has some resolution and frequency that 0.1 matters as mm -hmm. far as light is concerned. And so we can actually go down a few order, more orders of magnitude and look for those uh, differential changes. And so we don't have to be as precise in our knowledge for where a signal may uh, appear, but we still are limited by the telescope and how many of those frequency channels that uh, right. are available to us in any one time. And, and so you're, you're going through, you're, you're scanning this part of the sky, you're going through these, these signals. And I know that like one of the real advantages of of scanning for radio signals is that there are not natural sources that can generate the kinds of signals that say we would be generating here on earth. So would there be anything that could sort of like, if you saw a signal, is there anything out there naturally that could confuse this, the signal? 
Absolutely. There are a number of things, both theoretical and known. So from a known perspective, we know molecules and atoms give off emissions of light that are characteristics like a fingerprint to themselves. And so if we look for and we find a signal, one of the first things we would need to do is see, does that match with one of these characteristics of light for an, either that at an atom or a molecule? And I'm working with a group at University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, that is working out a way to computationally uh, build these type of uh, spectra, we call them, these uh, fingerprints from the molecules at a very rapid rate using supercomputers. So basing it off from theoretical modeling. So even if we can't exactly predict the width, and sometimes we can, of, of the signals for these molecules or the atoms, um, we should be able to predict essentially what the central, the frequency would be that it would emit at. And so we could identify them through these signatures. So that's one thing. Those are two that are absolutely known to exist within the spectra and would be really easy to be able to say, yes, it's a molecule. No, it's not a molecule. Or yes, it's an atom. No, it's not an atom. The other things that are more theoretical, there are in particular towards the galactic center with the prevalence of really strong magnetic fields and things called neutron stars, which are the dead cores of, of exploded stars. Then there's a potential for detection of something called a QCD axion particle, which is um, a theoretical dark matter particle, which is converted to light um, in the presence of these strong magnetic fields. Hmm. So there's an expectation that those might exist. And so then you would have to go to your high energy physicists and said, you know, is this signal consistent to what you would expect if this was the case? Right. And so there's a few things that we that naturally occur that you would have to go through in this process to be able to rule out whether it's naturally occurring or the potential for SETI. And I think we've seen That's this funny. historically as well. Yeah, bad, you know, it's like bad news. Um, it turns out it was a natural signal that caused <laughs> our, our uh, that we thought was, was aliens. Good news, we've explained dark matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that would be, exactly. be all right. Um, yeah. So, so, like, give us a sense. I mean, I know that, like, Jill Tarter always likes to use this, this explanation of, like, searching for life. Like, all we've done is we've examined one tiny drop on the side of, an, of the ocean and then said, well, we don't see any fish in this drop. And so we just kind of haven't found any aliens, the equivalent. How comprehensive do you feel the search that you did was so far? I think the, so this search was the fourth in a series. And between ours, we represent some of the largest um, searches ever being able to be done in a single setting, so to speak, because of the wide field of the array, the wide field of view of the array. But we are still very, very narrow in scope, I guess. Um, they talk about uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has nine parameters to its search space. You know, two of those are area, essentially your X and Y of your box that you're searching in, right? And then we've got this frequency space. So if we look at radio, we're only covering a half of a percent, so to speak, of the entire radio 
spectrum. So there's still plenty of radio spectrum that we haven't actually searched yet. So frequencies is another thing. Um, there's also this idea of polarization. So polarization is this idea that light waves travel multi-directional. It's not a single plane that where it's riding. Um, it's not like a guitar string where when you pluck it, it just goes in, in one direction. It'd be like being able to pluck it and then have it rotate almost in a, in a circle as it's, as it's riding a wave. And being able to disentangle those types of signals as well is something that we haven't actually done in SETI at all. Hmm. Um, and, the, and there are a number of, of other parameters that we can search like this um, that we haven't focused on in the past, partially because of the technological challenges or the data processing challenges that ensue from those those ways of searching in the data. So, 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 and, so you got the, you got the, your X Y coordinates. You've got the polarization. You've got the frequency. Uh, five more. Yeah, they're, they're, I can't remember all of them. Time. Time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so did we look at the right patch of sky at the right time, at the right frequency? You know, it, it can go infinitely. And this is why we're starting to work towards these ideas of commensal SETI. Um, the idea of being able to ride along with any telescope wherever it's pointing and be able to look for the potential of a technological civilization existence mm. while other people are doing other science along the way. Right. And that's some of the project that I'm working on currently. And I guess that would be the opposite. Then bad news, you didn't discover dark matter. Good news, you found aliens. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so let's sort of transport you almost 10 years into the future and now you've got access to the square kilometer array how would that change this work is one of the main things would be one its sensitivity so being able to probe further across our galaxy to detect faint signals is one of the ideas the other one, I guess, is being able to better localize those signals if we did find them. So um, essentially think of it as going from a child's crayon to draw a picture to a fine tip marker to draw a picture. We have a much better chance of, of localizing a particular signal and where it's coming from. So mm. not just a solar system or a part of the sky, but you know which planet Wow. actually originating from. That's amazing. So those are the types of advances that we're hoping to gain from these next generation of telescopes. It's funny. Uh, I don't know if you saw the picture that came out of Meerkat a couple of weeks ago of the core of the Milky Way with all these incredible filaments. And I think with that picture, and I'm sure people are, are familiar with it, but the, and I should have made, like, made it my background or something, but um, <laughs> because like the traditional idea of what a radio telescope does, like it's scanning little parts of the sky. It's only got like four, maybe 16 little sensors, maybe more now. And it's just making this, t this map of the sky and it looks like a blob, like, and then they put various colors to the blob. But when you look at that picture from Meerkat, it is like a photograph. It looks like a visual photograph and yet it's in radio. And I don't think people appreciate how incredible that image is. And that is a precursor. That's a prototype. That's a test of what's coming with the square kilometer array that we are going to be seeing photos of the radio sky that look as stunning as photos in the visible light. Yeah, 
absolutely. And I think from a perspective of that and the, the computation that has to go into creating that quality yeah. of the data, but from a radio astronomer perspective, the excitement there is we're seeing features we've never seen before, no, things that we can't explain it, or maybe can explain some of the theory and ideas of, that we've had about the center of our galaxy, but we hadn't been able to visualize this um, in the in the past. And we're seeing the same thing with the low frequency components. So Meerkat is a precursor to the mid frequency or the higher frequency of the SK. And we're seeing the same thing with the MWA, the images that I was able to generate of the center of our galaxy. You know, imaging wasn't my focus, but it's still, I can see some of these filaments and these structures and things yeah. like that. So there's a survey that is in progress at the moment called GLEAM, the Galactic an extragalactic all-sky MWA survey. Um, and its next generation is called Gleam X. And that is going to generate some fantastic images of the of a different band of radio wavelengths. And it'll be really interesting scientifically to be able to compare these and see how these structures change as a function of frequency and time. I sort of envision it like the deep field, the Hubble deep field, but in the yes. radio spectrum, which would be <laughs> yes. quite amazing. So then let's imagine that that there are extraterrestrial civilizations out there and they're scanning the sky in the way that we're scanning the sky. How obvious would the would the Earth be? I think um, it depends on our time. Right. So if we think of 100 years ago, so if the light has traveled for 100 years, we're probably going to look pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. We hadn't generated a lot of radio signals. We've just started, you know, we were using Morse code, which probably isn't very powerful. Um, I think 1906 was the first time a radio uh, was turned on and we played Silent Night on Christmas Eve, I think it was. Right. And uh, that was the first acknowledgement of, of more complex signals. Uh, once we get into the 1980s and 1990s, you know, we're probably pretty radio loud. So we're probably leaking a lot of signals between all the communication we were doing through satellites and the way our TVs worked and the way our car radios worked. But now as we're going into more microchips and digital and things like that, maybe we'll look a little quieter. Hmm. So it depends on how far away they are and how long the light has been traveling, kind of how bright or how obvious we may be. Uh, but there's also been times where we've used some uh, like the Arecibo telescope to purposely send out signals. Right. Who knows, maybe that will reach somebody at some point. But the you know, like, like imagine a very advanced civilization took the same kind of technology that we're doing, but they scaled it up several orders of, of magnitude. If they're within that hundred light years of of the Earth, are we like, would they have to be looking very specifically? Or would we be obviously here? Do you think? I mean, they've I got unlimited yeah. tech like they've got you know they've got the square they've got the square 10,000 kilometer array that's floating in space and they're scanning the sky to see what they can see do we pop out as an obvious technological civilization to them i i would think so um it's hard to judge but i think the the 
computational side of SETI has derived that if, if another civilization had even something like the Arecibo telescope, that if they, if they were within, I think it's 40 parsecs of us, they could find us. So about, about 120 light years. Yeah. Right. If they had something like an array of dishes, like the very large array or the Merchant Widefield array or one of these other ones, then that can go up to an order of magnitude by another order of magnitude, so another factor of 10 right. in distance. And so, yes, the, it, it's possible that they could, if they were looking at the right patch of sky to find us with something like that. If they were looking at the right patch of sky, and I'm just assuming that they've got, you know, the Vera Rubin of radio <laughs> telescopes and they're, and, you know, with the 10,000 square kilometer array and they're scanning the entire radio sky every night and their, their supercomputers can totally handle the processing the data. And so it's really a factor of how long we've been here not how much we're transmitting really yes. is the is yeah. the limiting factor in this and then to sort of switch that back around the other way then as we with the Murchison with Meerkat with the square kilometer array we should be able to detect other earths in a fairly vast sphere around us right if they yes absolutely if we if they think like us that's also the other limitation right yeah if um you know we've been using radio astronomy to look for these signals for a fairly long period of time for a couple of different reasons one is that the large size of radio waves mean that they can usually get past the dust that's within the galaxy and so they're not as impeded that's why in radio waves, we can get these stunning images of the center of our galaxy compared to if we stared at it with uh, an optical telescope, even Hubble at the center of our galaxy, it looks a lot more black and a lot more shaded. And the other aspect is one, we can build the telescopes on the ground. We don't have to build space-based telescopes because for the most part, our atmosphere is transparent mm -hmm. um, to radio waves. There's a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's true. And so that would be true for another civilization. If they were trying to send out a wave, then it would be much easier to, to work with something that has a frequency that could be shooted out through an atmosphere no matter how thick or thin that atmosphere may be. And, you know, otherwise, the other suggestion is using something like gamma rays, which can be uh, fairly similar as far as the opacity to the, the dust and gas that's within the galaxy. But then you actually have to do build a satellite in order to be able to detect right. it because you can't, they can't hit the Earth. And they and won't so, admit, they won't admit from through the atmosphere of a planet if they're releasing right. gamma rays. Right. Right. Like unless they're having like a nuclear war maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which would be kind of sad to spot. I don't know. That feels yeah, like that exactly. might be a that might be a science fiction short story. Um, yeah, there um, you go. Um, but so I guess like you can't prove a negative. But when would you feel like there's nobody home like you know you've got a much more powerful telescope you've got all the supercomputing resources you need you we've got 
even next generation beyond the square kilometer array. You've scanned all of the, you know, you've gone through all of the spectra that we have access to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At which point, when would you start to feel like there's nobody home? I guess it depends on what you define home. Do you define home as only in our galaxy or do you define home as our universe? Because I think once we build all the capabilities to search as much as we could of all of the stars, which are you know hundreds of billions of stars within our own galaxy and the potential for hundreds of billions of solar systems, then you know, then we've got hundreds and billions of potential other galaxies. And so that might require building another style of civilization. Um, but that another would... style of, of telescope, sorry, not civilization. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, you know, I'm kind of envisioning this idea of like a type three civilization, you know, Kardashev mm -hmm. civilization that's enclosed all of the stars in Dyson swarms and <laughs> we're detecting. But I mean, that that search has been done using infrared telescopes as opposed to radio. But I'm it, it feels to me like the radio detecting the radio emissions from one of these civilizations would be kind of next level because now you're trying to detect leaked emissions coming from millions of light years away right so i think yeah it, but i think human nature is to not give up and i think we've got a dream out there that that something else does exist and i think the the multi-part search of this as well you know there are there is a community like of what a this paper represented or this work represented of looking for intelligent civilizations, but there's this idea of just trying to find any signs of life mm -hmm. that are around a planet anywhere within our galaxy. So this would be looking for those early signs of, you know, parasites or microbes or anything like that, that may indicate that there's life growing. It just hasn't gotten there yet. Right. And and that would be but I mean, that would be a different, you know, that would be Louvoir's problem, or, or Habex or something that's that's scanning, say the atmosphere of a, of a planet as, as like, I guess I like, like, obviously, like, like, we obviously need to caveat and say, like, obviously, there's no reason to believe that the aliens will be communicating in radio signals in the, in the wavelengths that we have identified, obviously, they could be. But you know, when you get that ar that argument from people, how do you typically respond? Like, I guess, I'm like, how do you like, why bother searching in these radio waves when the aliens could be using neutrinos? Um, because it's available to us and we can't really is the, is the answer to it. You yeah. know, it's that while we're doing other science and investigating answers to other questions about our galaxy and our universe, we can also on the side use the same exact data to look for the potential that another intelligent civilization exists. So why wouldn't you, right? I mean, our own curiosity as scientists tend to lead us down to what else can I do with this data? What else can I look for? You know, what other questions can I try to find answers to? And that quest drives everything that we do as academics um, to find answers. And so if there's one that you can do that either as passive research or active research, um, why not? You yeah. know, if you find something, how exciting would that be? 
If you don't find something, okay, we, we publish those results just because we can say, we ticked off looking at the sky in this way at this time period. Don't bother doing that again. Let's move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's sort of the same thing. Like there is, like we're starting to see some interesting conferences among the the techno signature community right now just in the brainstorming phase and and that nuclear war that i mentioned is one of the things that has been proposed as well as global searching for global warming and chlorofluorocarbons and megastructures and all this kind of stuff um and then just why not try to look Absolutely. I think science and science fiction feed off from each other. Most of us grew up reading or watching science fiction while also doing, you know, then building up to being able to do science. And so, you know, that adds to our creativity of what it is that we're looking for is the, inspired by some of these stories and these ideas of, of how, how to think. And so that brainstorming is really important to science and SETI is no different. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I get people, people will sort of have this, like they've already thought it all through all the way to the end. And they've said, you know, the aliens are, they're, they've turned inward or they're, they've switched to fiber optic cables or whatever. And, and you just kind of say like, it doesn't hurt to think like it doesn't hurt to at least imagine ideas. And then it doesn't hurt to, while a telescope is already doing some scientific research, just take a look because the answer is like the most profound, like if we could find an answer to this question, it's like the most profound question that humanity has ever asked. Are we alone in the universe? I'd like to know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think while we're doing this search and this endeavor, we have found so many other things we didn't expect. Um, we were going to run a conference about a year ago called Searching for the Unknowns in Unknown Data. And it's, it's because there's all sorts of types of things that we might find as signals. Then you have to then you pull together as much of the scientific community as you can to identify those. The first time that we found the emission from these dead cores of stars called pulsars, they were labeled as little green men or LGM mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because you know it was an easy scenario of, of SETI. And later we found out that they're actually uh, a really exciting scientific thing that's you know everywhere and we can use it for all sorts of other science and they're perfect clocks and uh and there's so many other things uh, fast radio bursts um that come up in the news occasionally that was a SETI was an uh, an original suggestion for the origin the origin of those signals as well uh it's moved on from that but there's uh we by looking through the data to find SETI, we often find other things we didn't mm -hmm. even know to look for. Um, so one of the ideas that's been suggested is, you know, this idea of von Neumann probes that that instead of searching for the signals, that the most efficient way to explore the entire galaxy is to send self-replicating robot probes from from star system to, to star system, and that in theory, there should be some remnants of that of those probes here in the solar system is there a way that you could target a search closer to home would it be different um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of our radio telescopes, they're really designed to, to probe much further in distance. Um, but really when we do a lot of these searches for blind, it's not hard to find ourselves for one. Yeah. It's not hard to find our own planets. Uh, and it's not hard to things like the moon. We reflect our own uh, radio signals off from the moon back to us. And so we find the moon on a regular basis in our data. Sometimes we find the sun. Right. Um, Intelligent so, signals coming from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can find those in our radio data, then if there are other floating objects um, within our solar system, giving off some kind of radio emission, it's likely that we would have we would have detected them. If nothing else, you've also got the like the communication that's going back and forth between the satellites that just left past Pluto or the ones around Mars or the ones close to the moon or JWST or all of these other things that um, while we're tracking those, if if there's something that was similar, somebody would notice. Right, right. And so it they're either they turned off billions of years ago and so they're not transmitting anymore or the signal is is too too faint um so i mean i talked briefly about this idea of von neumann probes this idea of the fermi paradox that you know the universe is big and old and life formed here on earth and fermi said so like you know life should be everywhere but we don't see it so so where is everybody what <clears throat> You know, I mean, you've kind of dedicated your life to this, to the search side of it anyway. What is the explanation to the Fermi paradox that you feel is most satisfying? I like um, not the Fermi paradox, but really there's a theory called the Gaia theory that I heard early on into my PhD that suggested every planet starts off with the potential for life. It's just whether the atmosphere was developed in, in tandem to be able to support the existence of life. And I like that because then that continues to edge this, this possibility that, that these, these civilizations, these have a potential for develop and maybe they haven't developed yet. And so this, the light hasn't been able to travel for far enough for us. Perhaps it is old and maybe everything is dead except for us. Um, but I don't know, I have a hard time believing that that's the case statistically with just how many planets and how many stars are, are orbiting within our galaxy. I think there was a recent computation that suggested that the number of planets supporting life within our galaxy may be as low as 10, but I think the error bars were like plus or minus 100. Right. Um, so there could be so... minus 90. Or... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's really hard, you know, if you talk to a statistician or a mathematician, they would never make predictions off from a sample of one. And so right. it can be really, really difficult um, as a challenge, but curiosity just continues to lead the potential for, for this research. So what do you think, you know, this is a question that I always get, and I'm sure you get some version of this question as well, which is like, how prepared is humanity to know the truth? And how how do you think it would impact us if you received a really clear signal and there was an alien there going let's talk <laughs> send, yeah. you know send a reply how, how do you think we would sort of deal with that 
I think in the in the 1960s when SETI first kind of started or is considered to have started, it, it was purely a scientific and engineering endeavor. But at this point, this covers psychology and sociology as well. And precisely because of that question, if we did find something and we could verify, or it was a signal that was packed with information with a message inside of it, we couldn't deny its existence. And so how would society deal with this? Well, one research study that I had recently read suggested that um, in a poll of people, every individual said, yeah, I'd be cool with it. But they also said that every neighbor would be terrified. Yes. So, you know, what is it that we does that say about ourselves that we, you know, we're we're prepared to handle it, but we don't think anybody else around us is, is prepared to handle I've it. I've got to read that study. That's so great. That's exactly that's so funny because everyone I talk to, that is exactly how they, you know, they've like, I'm so excited. I can't wait to find out. But the regular people, the normies, they would lose their mind and there would be madness in the streets. And I Yeah. And I guess it's funny that that everybody is feels that they themselves are ready and emotionally prepared to handle this, but the rest of the public is are just going to lose it if they learn the terrifying truth. And I think the internet may have helped with our preparedness in some ways. If we think about that um, 100 years ago, being able to talk to people in another continent was a bit rare. And so our distribution of cultural beliefs and understanding of the world was limited to bits of information that we may have sought after. But now we're constantly flooded with information about the entire world. And so our worldview and our understanding of, of differences has expanded if you choose to think that way, mm -hmm. yep. right? As a potential. So that may help us prepare for something more unique and different, like something that may come from another civilization. Whereas it would have been much harder to prepare people a hundred years ago that may have had a much more narrow worldview of, of even the existence of life on our own planet. I mean, I feel kind of, the way I sort of experience is I sort of feel lonely that we're on this planet, we don't really know anything about the wider universe apart from what we've been able to observe and to make contact with another civilization would be a just be a game changer because now we wouldn't feel so alone and we would have the ability to just share like we found we measured pi as this what did you find? How, yeah. how would how do you think that we would go about actually setting up some kind of dialogue with an with another civilization like i know like you're so busy just thinking about whether or not they you're trying to find them but have you spent much time thinking about you know what what do you do as the dog who actually catches the car um yeah i guess it's in in uh really collaborating with the right groups of people to kind of figure out what this all means uh like i said before it I do enjoy science fiction. I like some of the the solutions that people have come up with of finding ways of creating something as simple as a, a Morse code that both can find some common ground, right? And then and then be able to work up from there, whether it's learning shared languages or something. But you know, there's there's no expectation that uh, communication is, can be handled. 
you don't know if they create vocal cords, you know, maybe, maybe they don't have them, you know, or maybe they're completely structured differently. So there's no expectation that we have to have create the same sounds. And I think that's why there's a series of, of study that um, goes and looks at how communication works uh, in different organisms across our own planet, mm. you know, to look at that variety, um, to start driving an understanding of uh, how would we create that common ground? You know, whether it's it's starting off with dolphins and whales or fish or anything like that. I never thought of you know talking to a goldfish in a in a bowl and expecting a response, but maybe we do find an intelligent goldfish. Now, how do we how do we how would we expect a, a response? And um, it, it's definitely a big challenge. And um, but I think that's something that if you put the right minds together, you could definitely. Get across and the other part of course is the the transmit time the transit time back and forth if we find a civilization that is if we're like really lucky and it's like only 20 light years away then then we send a you know we send a message this is like you know is this on is this thing on and then we wait 40 years for the reply and they go like yes we can hear you yeah, and that's if you can pack the information into light. If you're actually trying to talk over a sound, that's even slower of a signal, right? Our, our closest planet, our closest solar system is 14 light years away, but that's 30 years in sound. So if we decided to try to create a continuous dialogue, you know, we would be talking for 30 years before they hit the beginning of that monologue. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they'd have to they'd have to then deal with it and then send us a, a reply back. Um, now, you're focused on on radio waves. What field, you know, I talked briefly about some of the other methods of, of searching for signatures. What what methods are you most excited about that you think will bear fruit in the in the coming years? I think still focusing on on radio is a really good starting point just because we know that uh, from our own perspective, at least due to our own resources or whatever, that uh, you don't have to be hugely advanced to generate radio signals. And so the idea of these all sky commensal surveys, so being able to tag along while a telescope is slowing and doing all sorts of other stuff, um, and so we can, we go back to the same patches of sky over and over again, or we hit patches of sky that we may not have thought to target previously. You brought up the example of the Hubble deep field image. That was a patch of sky that everybody tried to convince Hubble wasn't worth looking at, right? And, and they kept saying, but it's black, it's dark, it's empty, it's blank, there's nothing there. Why would you stare there? And then they went, oh, you know, there's actually stuff there. There's all of these galaxies, you know, that's really interesting. And so um, if we take out when, when we have to normally uh, apply for telescope time, you have to convince an allocation committee that where you're staring is going to produce something interesting. And that can be difficult when it comes to SETI because we just don't know. And so if you can ride along with a telescope, along with everybody else doing their science that has been deemed as being really exciting and interesting and producing something, 
then then you can go and you can do broaden your search in places that you may not have thought to look um, in frequency range you may not have considered or important and it broadens our search criteria in a in a relatively simple way and I know that there's the the optical experiments, the laser mm -hmm. experiments, right? The idea of, you know, it, it would be just as hard, easy to send something like a gigantic laser pointer, you know, towards, towards the earth. Um, or, you know, gamma rays is, a, is another example is okay, whether it's, it's a, a, a holocaust or, or something else going on, you know, some kind of the uh, major war that we end up detecting. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, at this point, there's no reason to not look. Mm -hmm. And I think optical and infrared are the hardest just because of their impact by the dust. And so the spance, the how far away can we look is a bit limiting. The, the SETI Institute's very existence is sort of due to the fact that there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm from the National Science Academy, NASA, various scientific fields to do this work. And and so the SETI Institute has sort of kept the flame alive for decades doing this work. Do you feel like there's a lot more excitement now and a lot more willingness to fund these kinds of projects from the wider scientific community? I think so. And I think partially it's because we've broadened the concept of SETI, broadened the concept of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence to encompass a lot more fields than radio astronomy. And we're broadening our um, our criteria for what type of signal that we're searching for as well. And I think the, the, the commensal helps and also just the amount of other things that we have discovered by looking in a way we hadn't preconceived would be the best way to look, hmm. makes it a lot more interesting to the broader community of science. This idea of searching for unknowns um, the unknown unknowns, the, the answering the questions that we've been trying to answer, but in a way that we hadn't perceived that would be the best way to answer it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's no way to know, but do you think we'll get a signal in our lifetimes? Um, I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's going to stop me from looking. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not uh, deluding myself to think that with how, as being a radio astronomer, you realize just how vast the universe is. When you can get on a plane and travel to the other side of the world within 24 or 30 hours, you know, in some ways the, the world feels fairly big. And then when you do radio astronomy, everything feels, you feels very, very small. Yeah. And you just realize how vast it is, you know, recently completed another survey to look for um, hydroxyl molecule in OH. And, you know, the number of stars that pop out as we improve our technology and the number of signals that we can detect now as we improve our, our telescopes and our computing resources and things, 
uh, just makes it constantly feel like there's more and more. It's like those more and more layers as, as you as you go down and, and you increase that resolution uh, quite significantly and you make those pixels smaller. Mm -hmm. And so um, it just, it feels so vast and so big that I don't believe that in my lifetime I could search enough of the sky to be convinced that there isn't something there and I've just missed it. <laughs> back, back to that analogy, in, in, you know, you've, you've taken a spoonful and now maybe you've taken a cupful and, yeah. and it's still a pretty big, a pretty big ocean. I think, I think for me, you know, I'm more negative about the possibility like I find the the Fermi paradox just like so convincing and kind of terrifying and and then I then I worry that that we're the only in, in, intelligent he uses air quotes f f civilization um, in the Milky Way in the observable universe what have you and it feels like it puts the pressure on us to not mess this up to not ruin this planet to not use up all of the resources until you know, and not leave anything good for the dolphins or the octopuses to figure it out after we go. And, and I would love to have that signal to know that we're not alone. And to know that it, it feels like the pressure is kind of overwhelming on us at this time to not screw this up. And so that's, that's why I feel we definitely should look that it, it would at least be a relief to know there's someone else out there that's facing the same challenges that we are and has their, you know, is, is working towards some kind of solution. It's not just on us to not get this wrong. So that's, so I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing this and I'm really glad that, that SETI has, has gained so much, uh, appreciation and, and sort of enthusiasm for the public and that you are able to, at least for now, jump on like a parasite and, and and gather some of the additional data. And maybe in the future, there will be giant telescopes dedicated to this task, as opposed to uh, that. Uh, you know, it was wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, congratulations on on moving closer to some of the big American telescopes joining the SETI Institute. It sounds really exciting. Um, if people want to keep track of your work, what is the best way to do that? Um, so I tend to do a lot of science tweets through Twitter. Um, so it's usually the best place to find me. I'm at Shanoa Chem, C-H-E-N-O-A-C-H-E-M. And that's probably the best place. I, I tend to talk about random science facts, uh, information about greyhounds and greyhounds rescue, uh, and a bunch of other random things on occasion. So uh, you can find me there. Or search your name on archive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, good luck. Let me know if you hear from some aliens. Sounds good. Thank All you right. for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. End the stream.